if you knew you were going to die one week from today, what would you do? What would you do with that time? If you knew that you were going to die a week from today, you knew I have one week left to live, how would you spend those last few days? Who would you spend your time with during those last few days? You know, maybe you would get out your bucket list, you'd brush that off, or you'd make one, and you, I'm going skydiving this week. I've wanted to do it. I've never done it. I know I'm going to be dead seven days from now. I'm doing it. Or maybe you're going to book a flight to some European destination that you've always had there and you've never gone. And it's now or never, baby. We're doing it. Uh, or maybe you, get, you would get sentimental. Maybe you would call people you haven't talked to for a while, check on them, maybe give them some news. Maybe you would, you know, people that maybe you've had strained relationships with, you're going to reach out to them and try to make amends because, you know, I've, I've got six or seven days here. I've got to do some work. Or maybe you get your financial affairs in order, or you make your funeral plans, or you make sure that the kids and grandkids are taken care of. There's all sorts of things that one might do if we knew we just had one week to live. Today we're going to start a series leading us through Easter that's called Entry to Empty. And this series is going to take a look at what Jesus did in his final week before he was crucified. A lot of stuff sort of happens here. It's actually going to cover five or six weeks as we look at from basically... Sunday before he is crucified, through the night before he's crucified, that Thursday, uh, to the Friday when he's crucified, and then celebrate Easter Sunday when he rises from the dead. So there's several things that happen, and we'll look at that in this series to see this entry to empty. I think what's interesting about almost, I think there's only one exception that we'll look at. All of these events, except for one, are all mentioned in all four Gospels. That's a pretty rare thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. A lot of what they say repeats each other. There's a lot of mirroring going on now. It might be placed a little bit differently or worded slightly differently. Uh, is going to put in a lot more Old Testament scripture imagery in there, as we'll even read in a minute, than the other two might. But those three are the same. And John, which is, as we'll see also today, the most personal of all four gospels. John and Jesus had a very close, special bond, almost like an older brother, kid brother relationship. And so the kid brother John, years later, reflecting about the life and ministry of his friend Jesus, writes a more personal sort of view of the same events, the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, but all four of them mention most of these accounts. And we'll see it even here today as we'll kind of pull from all of them to get a full circle view of this event today and many of them in this series. But today we'll look at the entry uh, the first event in this week of Jesus' final, the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And this is normally celebrated the Sunday before Easter. It kicks off what we call Passion Week now as he enters into Jerusalem. So we're going to read this account. It's pretty well known, even if you don't have much of a church background or a Bible background. You probably have heard of this event, maybe even know a few details of it. We're going to look at it, break it down, and we're not just going to look at what's going on. We're going to look at, really more importantly, who is there at this event and why that's important and what it means. So let's start uh, this morning in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, and uh, we'll read the full, the full account, 11 verses, and then we'll kind of break it down and look at the other points of view from this same event. So it's Matthew 21, verse number 1. Matthew says this, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. 
Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Blessings on the one who comes from the Lord! Praise God in highest heaven! The entire city of Jerusalem was in uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, had a population of about 80,000 people, which doesn't seem like a huge city now, but back then it was one of the larger cities definitely in that region and probably one of the larger cities in the known world, 80,000 people. But this event, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, is happening at the beginning of Passover week, which is the highest and holiest, or one of the highest and holiest days in the Jewish calendar. And so at this time and place, during this event, there's probably upwards to 2 million people crammed into a city that normally has 80,000. That's like if you take the population of Kansas City, Missouri proper, half a million. That's like 12 million people invading downtown Kansas City. Now, we think in a parade, a million people's a lot. Multiply that by 12 or more, and that's what we're looking at here in the city of Jerusalem when Jesus enters into the city. So there's a large crowd in Jerusalem for the feast and the festival. That's a week-long celebration here or more. Um, but when Jesus comes, there's obviously thousands of people in the direct vicinity. So there's a large crowd, but as we'll see today, there's not just one crowd here in this story. There's actually two crowds. So we'll look at today the two, the two different groups of people, the two crowds that are here mentioned in this story. And these two distinct groups of people view Jesus very differently. The same exact thing is happening, but the points of view vary differently. The way that they look at Jesus and treat him and approach this are very different. So we're going to look at these two crowds, these two groups of people, and we'll also, as we get closer to the end, look at a more personal example that signifies the same idea, but in a more intimate sort of way. So let's look at the two crowds, one and then the other. The first crowd is what we're going to call the open crowd. The first group of people that are here in Jerusalem when Jesus enters open crowd. And the first thing that they do is obvious is they, they're receiving and they're praising. They're receiving and they're praising. We read the entirety of Matthew's account of this event, but look at, let's look at the beginning of John's point of view. Here's how John recollects this same occasion. It's in John chapter 12, verse number 12. John writes this, the next day, we'll talk about what happened the day before later on. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem through the city. A large crowd of past visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. So again, Matthew, it seems like as he's entering, people kind of flock. But John's like, no, even before we got into the city limits, people have heard this celebrity is coming into town. We're going to rush to meet him. 
They don't wait around for him to come. This might be their only chance, especially you have 80,000 regulars in town, but you have 11, over 11 million out-of-towners. This could be their only chance to see with their own eyes this person they've only heard about in newspaper reports, on the local news, the town crier, whatever, however they distributed their information, they've heard about that. He's, whoa, we're in town, he's in town, we gotta go see him. It's like a one night only Elton John end of career kind of performance type of scenario going on here. This celebrity's coming into town, I've gotta go see him. It's sort of like, I remember uh, years ago when I worked at the airport for, for Avis, uh, one day the president was flying into town and you could tell because there was nothing going on anywhere near the airport for quite a while. The president's coming. Air Force One's going to fly in. There's no other planes anywhere. There's, the runways are all clear. Everything is prepared for the president to land his one plane, this huge plane that could fit hundreds of people, probably has a couple dozen people on it. So he lands. And so when he gets there, people are prepared for him to come, aren't they? But they clear the airways, they clear the runways, they have a procession waiting for him to come down the stairs, and then they have, you know, the cars ready, the motorcade, the police escort, everything's prepared when he comes into town. That's exactly what's happening here with Jesus. They're running out to meet him. They're going out there. And really what I think this does for us, it's a really good picture of what us following Jesus should look like. We, we follow him. We pursue him. It's not just sitting around, okay, Jesus, impress me. Okay, Jesus, answer my prayer. I'm going to sit here and wait and just see you know, what, what can you do. What, you, know, I, you don't have any limitations, I guess, but let just, you know, just perform for me. That's not how it works. We're, we're to pursue him, run out to meet him, to follow him. It's an active relationship with Jesus. As we've been talking about even in the book of Acts, and we'll see it as we continue on later this year, the original Christian church, they were not called Christians for a while. They were just called people of the way. It was always directional. It was always moving. It was always going somewhere. Wherever he's going, we're going to go. If he's coming this way, we're going to rush as quick as we can to meet him. When he gets there, we're going to follow him wherever he goes. That's how it should look for us as well. This open crowd went out to meet him. And when they received him, they also praised him. We read some of the, the words uh, from Matthew. Let's look now at Luke's account and just see what he, how he recounts this event. Luke 19.37, it says, When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. So, when you, so here's where we get into, remember in John, it says, the next day this happens. So when you combine all these accounts and you look at Luke's account, or I'm sorry, John's account in John chapter 12, what's just happened just before the entry into Jerusalem is a dinner party that we'll look at later on that Jesus is invited to, a man named Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. They've invited him. He's a guest of honor because he just recently, maybe in the last few days, resurrected Lazarus from the dead. So all these events, half of the book of John is pretty much about an eight-day period plus the resurrection, post-resurrection. That's why John is such a, he focuses so personally on these last few days of Jesus in his gospel. So people not only from out of town are hearing, Jesus is here, I'm here, I got to go meet him. But they've also heard, in the last few days, he's raised a guy from the dead. I've got to go see this guy. I just want to look upon this person who can raise the dead, this of type of thing. 
People just want to get a glimpse, be near this miracle worker, Jesus. They praised God for the miracles that had been worked through Jesus. Notice something else that's very unusual. Usually when there's a crowd around Jesus, what you read from the Gospels is people are asking him for something. Heal me, help me, whatever. There's no mention of that in any of the four Gospel accounts. They're not asking him for anything. They're just praising him. I get convicted when I read that because I wonder how much of my prayer life is praising Jesus versus how much of my prayer life is just, you know, asking for stuff or praising him. Like, which is more? I mean, if I'm honest, I'm probably asking him for more stuff than I'm praising him for. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we're like, I maybe need to tip the scales in the praise direction a little bit more. But that's what we see that people are doing, that they're not asking for a thing. They're just praising God for the works that Jesus has done. And so I think that's a good way for us to kind of see how we can be like this open crowd. We can receive Jesus, not just receive him in terms of I'm saved and I'm a Christian, but then from then on, I'm receiving him every day. I'm following him. I'm pursuing him. I'm rushing out to meet him. And when I do that, I'm going to focus on praising him. But there's a second thing that this open crowd does, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Not only are they receiving and praying, but they're also giving. And what I want to focus on is that they're giving more than they realize. So look again. We read this from Matthew earlier, but let's look at what the people are saying when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Matthew 21, verse 9. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. So other gospels and other translations will use the word Hosanna. That's a big word for Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So that word Hosanna actually just simply means save us. So when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on this donkey, the people are saying, save us our king. But they're saying more than I think they realize they're saying. And I mean that in two ways. First of all, they're quoting the Old Testament. They may not even know that. They, they might, but they may not. Look at, there's two Old Testament scriptures that they're actually quoting here on this Palm Sunday. The first one is Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It says this, Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And they're also referencing Zephaniah 3.15. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the king of Israel, will live among you. At last your troubles will be over and you will never again disaster. The crowd here, the open crowd, is giving more than they even realize. Do they realize they're quoting scripture? They're very, they're very biblically literate. And that they maybe can't actually read the words, but they, many of them have so much of the Bible memorized. They may, and I've heard this song before. Where, what is this from? You know, Oh, it's Psalm 118. It's Zephaniah 3. They may have an idea of this, but they probably don't understand the cosmic level of what they're saying. They probably aren't connecting the dots like we are a couple thousand years later because they're not just simply quoting Scripture what they're doing on Palm Sunday is they're fulfilling Scripture. And there's probably no way most of them realize this. The other thing that they may not realize is that do they realize they're actually welcoming a king? It's possible. Because this may not be the first time that a crowd has gathered to call someone the king of the Jews. 
Less than 200 years before this moment, there was an uprising, a revolt, about 170 B.C., and the leader of this Jewish revolt was named Judas Maccabeus. And so he leads this revolt against the Seleucid Empire, who's a precursor to now the Roman Empire in the days of Jesus. And so people thought in that day and time, Judas Maccabeus is the Messiah. He's going to be the king. He's going to now overthrow the Seleucid Empire and set up his own kingdom, reestablish the throne of our ancestor David and rule forever and ever. But Judas Maccabeus came and went. And that never happened. So it's possible that we've seen other leaders, other people, other powerful figures in history get a similar treatment. But it's not until Jesus comes that he does establish his kingdom, even though it wasn't what the people thought it was going to be. So did they realize that they're welcoming king? Maybe, but not to the degree that they really are. And then here's the other thing. Did the crowd realize they were welcoming their Messiah? I would say only a very, very few understood the depth of what's happening in this moment. Not just a king, not just a ruler, but their savior. When they're saying, save us, O king, save us, our king, they maybe are referencing Psalms or Zephaniah. They may be thinking he's going to establish an actual throne, but they're probably not thinking he is the savior. He is the one. So they're giving more than they realize, the crowd, the open crowd is. Not only is the crowd in general giving more than they realize, even the closest followers and disciples of Jesus are giving more than they realize. So later, later on, when Matthew is thinking about this event as he's writing his gospel, uh, he mentions the donkey, right? We got to get the donkey and the colt so Jesus can ride in on this, okay? But look at what he says. We'll go back to Matthew 21, 4 and 5, and look at this detail here. Matthew says, this took place to fulfill the prophecy, which is Zechariah 9, verse 9, that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So Matthew, years later, is looking back and saying, that fulfilled Zechariah 9. However, in the moment, John says the disciples had no idea what's going on. They have no idea they're fulfilling scripture. John 12, 16. Disciple. So Jesus asked the donkey, and hey boss, didn't make any sense, but we'll follow your orders. But John says his disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. And if we're honest with the disciples, even the 12, even the inner three, Peter, James, and John, most of their time with Jesus was like this. Most of their time with Jesus, they were totally confused. They had no, like he said, the weirdest thing. It's, yeah, it sounds great. It sounds kind of mystical and spiritual, and we can vibe with that, but I have no idea what that means, Jesus. They're always asking him questions. Can you explain this? Can you teach us how to pray? Can you, what does this parable mean? They're always confused. So this is not like an outlier. This is their life. They're just hanging on, enjoying the ride with Jesus most of their time with him. A lot of times he'll say something and they'll be like, huh? Like, so for instance, one day there was a crowd of thousands of people listening to Jesus teach for hours and hours and hours. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, it's lunchtime. Hey, guys, feed these people. And they're like, what? We don't have any money. Do you know how much it would cost to feed 10, 15, 20,000 people? Like, we're not prepared. We didn't budget for this, Jesus, okay? And he's like, well, figure it out. 
And so they have to go to a boy and take his Lunchable. And they're like, this is not going to work either, Jesus. Like, that's their life with him. That's their whole existence with him. Nothing he says makes any sense almost any of the time at all. And yet he always comes through, so we're going to hang on to him. Because somehow he can make a Lunchable feed 20,000 people on a hillside. Even the first time that Peter, one of the first times Peter meets Jesus, he's been fishing all night and he's caught nothing. And then Jesus just shows up and he says, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, dude, who are you? I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. Stay in your lane, bro. Like, just, you don't know what you're doing. Jesus says, put your net on the other side of the boat. And what happens? They catch so many fish, the nets break. The boat nearly capsizes. So most of their existence with Jesus doesn't make any sense to them, and yet he always comes through. This is another great picture of what I hope your life with Jesus looks like. Most of the time, you may have no idea why you feel led to do what you feel led to do. Most of the time, the things that you maybe even read in Scripture, like, that sounds great. I don't really quite grasp the meaning of that. That happens maybe on a daily basis as we read the Scriptures. Some things that we sense in our heart and our spirit, we just don't get. So be encouraged. You're, you're doing a great job of following Jesus if that's how your life feels. Because that's how the people that literally, physically followed him felt all of the time. Don't beat yourself up about, well, I don't get this, and I dropped the ball here, and this doesn't make sense, and this is confusing, and why would God lead me that direction? Join the club. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to feel like that. Just stay encouraged, stay with it, because just like Jesus always came through in Scripture, he still always comes through. If you're following him as a disciple, he will never fail. It's an adventure. So if I'm on an adventure and I'm not the tour guide, we're going to take turns I'm not expecting. And that should be expected. But when we look at our life, we think, this happened I wasn't looking for, and that happened, and it's not fair, and this happened, it's painful. It's because life is an adventure. Life with Jesus is an adventure. So just hang on for the ride and stick close to Jesus. He'll get you where he wants you to go if you stay with him. In the end, we trust him if we're open, like the open crowd. There's a second crowd, though, here on this same day, or the closed crowd. If, if the open crowd is receiving and praising, the closed crowd is deceiving and plotting. These would be the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are in the crowd. They're listed in the crowd. We'll look at a reference or two in just a moment. And so if the, most of the crowd, or at least some of the crowd, at least the open crowd, views Jesus as a prophet, the closed crowd view Jesus as a problem. Because he's saying things that disrupt their sacred tradition. He's doing things that seem unorthodox in the way he does them. And what's most problematic for this closed crowd is that he's getting fame and attention, which means their influence is waning. Their power is being sucked out of them and given to Jesus because the crowd can't get enough of him. That used to be us. We used to be the authority. We used to have the final word. We used to be the one they came to. Now they go to this Jewish carpenter, right, the self-appointed rabbi that we don't approve of. We would never say he belongs in our club. He's threatening their power, and this is a problem. And so they deceive and they plot. Here's an example in John 12, verse 9. Again, the same exact day here. After Jesus passes through Jerusalem, here's what the Pharisees say. The Pharisees said to each other, there is nothing we can do. 
Look, everyone has gone after him. If you connect to the day before, John 11, what they've plotted is we know he's going to be in town in Jerusalem soon. We're going to kill him if we get a chance. But once Jesus comes in and there's thousands of people in a frenzy, they know, well, we don't have an open shot. We, we can't act now. We can't, we can't really be seen getting our hands dirty in a public place around thousands of people. So they had to put their plans off a few more days until really late Thursday night, early Friday morning, just a few days later. So they're plotting. They're deceiving. That's who they are. That's what they did. And, as, and this isn't the first time they've plotted these types of things. The last couple of years, they've increasingly upped their plots against him to now it's an assassination plot they have brewing. And it seems like they had this plan that, mu- that was delayed. L- let me look at this, um, th- this other thing too real quick. The two crowds that we're seeing. So we've already seen two different crowds here, right? But sometimes, here's what I want us to also see, then we'll move on to one more thing with this closed crowd. So with the two crowds, sometimes we look at the crowd on Palm Sunday saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, yay, Jesus. We look at the crowd on... Friday, five days later, and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And one would think, well, how can people go from yay Jesus to kill Jesus in five days? Well, there's two crowds. Are we seeing this? It's not that everybody's saying yay Jesus. There are many who have a lot of power and influence and connections who are saying kill Jesus. And then when they have the chance, they get the crowd up in a frenzy on Friday, Thursday and Friday. They get in an uproar. They get more, they, they're very good at deceiving and plotting the Pharisees. Again, they have the connections. They know the right people. They have the money to bribe people to do what they want. And so they're getting their crowd larger and larger and larger and larger till on Good Friday, it's, it's most of that crowd is the second closed crowd. So they're very good at what they do in deceiving and plotting. So let's look at also what the um, closed crowd does. If the open crowd was receiving and praising, the closed crowd is deceiving and plotting. If the open crowd gave more than they realized, the closed crowd were giving less than they rationalized. That's what this closed crowd is doing. Let's look here at Luke's, Luke's version of events, Luke 19, 39. Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. So the open crowd is saying, save us, king. We bless you in the name of the Lord. They're praising him for the works that God is doing through him. And the Pharisees know that they can't physically attack Jesus right now. And so they resort to publicly shaming him. How dare you let your followers talk like that? They're using religious language to shame Jesus openly they're putting him in this corner or, and they've tried over and over and over him in every corner they can think of and now they've got so many people he can't escape this now he's riding a donkey thinking he's fulfilling scripture like we got him now and so they try to shame him with this religious talk this is inappropriate this is embarrassing how if you're really a man of god how could you let them do that you need to stop them so they, they use these this language to get him and this for them is nothing new. It's what they've always done. They always use religious jargon, judgmentalism, and tradition to rationalize, catch this, their own sin. So what they do over and over is, so here, here, think about this. Here's where the Pharisees are. Here's how far their rationalization has gotten them. 
Sure, we're plotting the murder of an innocent man, but we have our reasons. And you've gone a long way (laughs) to rationalize that sort of thinking. And it really comes down to these that are smaller but still lead to this bigger problem. God's pleased with us because we're doing it the right way. And God's displeased with Jesus because he's not doing it our way, which is the right way. My way is better than theirs. So not only are they wrong, they are sinful in how they're living out their faith. The Pharisees would say, you know, yes, everyone is sinful, but my sin is minor compared to his sin. His sin is out in the open. It's egregious. He's trying to say he's God, and our sin is just, you know, we want to kill him. You know, it's apples and oranges. It's no big deal, you know. And I wonder if I look at my life, if I've ever sounded like that in some way. If I've ever tried to rationalize my sin because someone else's is not as bad as mine. Sometimes I'm a Pharisee, guys. It happens. Sometimes I look at my situation and I can say, well, God understands, but no, not them. No, he's going to judge them so harshly. He's going to fire and brimstone. But no, God's going to forgive me because he loves me. Like, this is ridiculous, but we can sometimes live that way. We can be a closed crowd to Jesus if we're not careful. And what happens is when when we are close to what God's doing because we don't understand it, we end up missing it, what the Pharisees did. We don't understand this method, so we're going to reject it. We're close to it, and then they missed it. So may we not become closed in our pride of maintaining religious traditions just for the sake of it? so that we become ineffective to impact people. That's what happened to the Pharisees. They were stuck on their tradition, which is not wrong, but they were close to what God was doing, and they became ineffective. They became, uh, really, we look at them as the bad guy in the Bible now, and it really shouldn't be that way, but because they were closed off to Jesus, they gave less than they rationalized, and it cost them. Now, you might say, well, that's generalizing, you know, how can we apply these personal things to these two large crowds, these groups of people? It's not really a one-for-one. I would say, first, it's not really a stretch to make those applications in general. But as we close, what I want to do for just a couple minutes is look at a more personal example in the life of Jesus that, as John says, happens the day before this event. We're going to look at not just two crowds, we close, but two people who signified the same two attitudes that the two crowds on Palm Sunday showed. That's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to illustrate the same ideas, but on a more personal level. So let's read this account. Again, it's a few verses, but then we'll break it down quickly as we close today. John 12, verse 1. So this is the day before what we just read, okay? Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, of course, because it's Martha, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. That's a great name for perfume, essence of nard. Yeah, I can just see the commercials now. She anointed Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. Catch that for just a second. Smell is probably the most powerful human uh, sense. I was thinking it is scent, but it's a sense. I was getting confused in my brain. Thank you. Smell is one of the most powerful human senses. I mean, just you might smell someone's cologne in the store, and it makes you think of your uncle or your grandpa. Or you smell like apple pie. Oh, think of your grandma, right? Uh, Or you just smell something in the room at the time, and it transports you to a totally different time and place. 
I just imagine as John, as he wrote this line in there on purpose. This moment, this event impacted him personally. The smell, he's like, if I smell that essence of nard, I go back to this place where this happened. Pick up at verse number four. Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume is worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And then I love not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him, to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. So we talk about this plan they had. We know it's obvious and clear here because they're going to kill Lazarus too. There is no record of this event happening if we kill both of them. So they mean business. Let's get to the point here. So at this dinner party, there's maybe a handful of people. We know there's the 12 disciples, Jesus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. There's probably 20, 30 people at this dinner party in Jesus' honor. But in this group are two people that have the same attitudes about Jesus, the same actions and feelings toward Jesus that the two crowds the next day have. So first we have Mary, who's the open crowd, who receives and praises him. And this has described her for a couple of years now. So she's one of Jesus' most devoted followers. She's one of his closest friends. She's always around the group, okay? And there's another story similar to this, that when Jesus is coming to their house for dinner sometime before that, uh, Martha is serving the food here. She's doing the same thing in the other story. And just like in this story, in the other story, Mary's sitting there listening to Jesus teach. And remember, Martha gets mad at Mary. Tell her to come help me, Jesus. And he says, no, 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 she's got it right. Same thing happens here. So she's a close follower of Jesus. But on this occasion, she praises him in this unique way. She pours this expensive perfume all over his feet. Now, this event is in the other three Gospels, but if you read them, they're very different. So I think, and I think most scholars would agree with me. I'm actually agreeing with them, okay? Spoiler alert. This happened probably more than once because the other events in Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem like a totally different person. One of them, Luke names Mary, but she's a sinful woman, probably a prostitute. Not the same Mary here in John. So this thing may have happened to Jesus multiple times. So there's at least two occasions I think that this is true, that this happens, but this is the other one. Mary's the, the brother, the sister of Lazarus. She's not a rando. She's not a prostitute. She's one of the friends and followers of Jesus, and she's receiving and praising her friend. But in doing that, she's also giving more than she even realizes. Because, remember, what does Jesus say? He says, leave her alone. She's preparing me for my burial. Was she? Is that, did she know she was doing that? Is that how she thought of this idea, what she thought of this gesture? There's no way she could have thought that. Only Jesus, who knows what's about to happen a few days later, is thinking in these terms. And so he sees her offering her worship of him by using this expensive perfume as preparation for my burial. That's the depth of this. And it shows the depth of her, the depth of her worship, show the depth of her relationship with Jesus. Because she's thinking, okay, this might really look foolish, but I'm going to worship Jesus. 
I may get weird looks, but I'm going to worship Jesus. It may cost me this year's wage of perfume, but I'm going to worship Jesus. And I pray that we'd have the same attitude toward Jesus. That Jesus, no matter what, I love you, I will serve you, I will follow you, I will worship you. But like in the crowd on the next day, there's a second person at this dinner party who has a totally different view of this event, and it's Judas. So if, if Mary is receiving and praising Jesus, Judas is deceiving and plotting. Now, if someone's reading the other three Gospels, they're going to read all the way through till the very end and see the plot twist. One of the twelve is the one that turned Jesus in. <gasps> but John should have said, spoiler alert, you know, he tells you, okay, Judas is the rat. Before it even happens, later on, let me just tell you, this is the bad guy in the story, Okay. And so he, he says, he, basically, he deceived all of them by plotting against Jesus this whole time. But what John does is he actually reveals a different truth about Judas. And I think it's this. Judas's deception and plotting didn't happen all at once. It happened slowly over time. So Judas has been deceiving and plotting this whole time. And it started with him taking some money off the top. Taking, oh, they're never going to notice, you know, a few bucks here, a few bucks. There. It's like, you're stealing from Jesus. This is not good. You are not the hero of your story here, Judas, as he probably thought he was. But this is how self-destruction tends to happen in anybody's life. A little compromise here and there, a little thing here and there. I mean, it, it, it builds and builds and builds, doesn't it? And so we don't want to be closed like Judas was to the Holy Spirit. Because I'm sure there were moments where Judas is like, hey, this is not right. This is not good. This is not healthy. This is not ethical. I need to maybe pull back. I need to stop. I need to repent. I need to confess. But he never did. And so we want to be open to the truth, the conviction, even the correction of the Holy Spirit because God loves us and wants the best for us. Here's the last thing that we'll look at with Judas as we close. The most dangerous part for Judas is that he gave less than even he rationalized. Because Mary's here doing this amazing sacrificial thing, and Judas tries to stop her, but to not look bad, he's trying to be concerned about, you know, oh, we could use that money to help the poor. And of course, John, you know, is honest with us. No, no, no. He's a thief. He's a bad guy. What, what John tells Judas saw a huge bonus all over the floor. He saw a big paycheck being spilled everywhere, and it's freaking him out. He can't take it. So it's like, no, stop, 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 stop. We could help the poor. We could do these ministry things. And it's like, no, no, no. But you don't go from disciple to thief without rationalizing things along the way. You can't go from thief to betrayer without rationalizing even more. And that's the, that's the terrible thing about Judas is that he was caught in this cycle that the more inward focused he became, the more closed off he became. And the more closed off he became, the more inward focused he became. And it was that cycle for him. And that's what cut him off from Jesus in the end was this vicious cycle. So my prayer is that we'd not be closed and inward focused, but we would stay open and outward focused. Because that's the mission. That's the mission of Jesus as God-centered, others-focused. So whether it's the crowd laying palm branches in front of Jesus, whether it's Mary pouring perfume on Jesus, may we be open like them. Open our lives to him and say, yes, Jesus, whatever it looks like to follow you, I want to do that. It may seem weird. I may not get it. I may not like it. It may be uncomfortable at times. It may cost me at times, but I want to follow you and be open to where you're leading me. 
If it's like, uh, you know, the crowd pour, putting, putting the palm branches out or like Mary pouring perfume, may we pour our lives out for Jesus. My prayer this Easter season as we enter, get closer and closer and closer to celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus is that we would remain open, like this open crowd in our lives of faith with Jesus. Let's pray. God, that is our prayer, that we would remain open to you and not close ourselves off to you. May we receive you and praise you for who you are. You are our Savior. You are our King. You're our Lord and our God, and we receive you, and we follow you, and we worship you and praise you all along the way. May we give our all to you. Jesus, I will love you. I will live for you. I will follow you no matter what it costs me, no matter what others might think or say, no matter what others might do against me to oppose me, no matter what other people say is in vogue or is popular in the day, Jesus, I'm going to follow you and you alone, your will, your way. When I feel like it and when I don't, when it makes sense and when it doesn't, on my good days and bad days, Jesus, may we remain open to you, open to following you. Help us to be fully surrendered and committed to stay faithful to you, to stay close to you, and stay effective for you as we stay on mission, helping to point people to the love, hope, and life they can find in Jesus. Help us to have that impact and influence as we remain open to you and your Holy Spirit and what you want to do in us and through us. This Easter season, may we stay open to you and all you have for us. God, I pray your blessing upon us as we leave this place today. Give us a great week this week and bring us back next time ready for more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.